Last week, we started a new series. We're talking a lot about calling, and we're going to be doing this over a, a group of weeks here. And our, our new series we're calling, Why Not You? And it's just this idea of going through the process where we stop talking ourselves out of the dreams, desires, and calling that God has placed on our lives. Because I think one of the things that we as people tend to do is we actually tend to, instead of embracing the calling of God, we end up talking ourselves out of it or, or making the assumption that somehow God's calling is for somebody else and that somehow we don't really fit into His plan. But we're going to be looking at a variety of things that, that show us the nature of God's calling and some of the things that, that go into the background, some of the things happening behind the scenes related to that calling as well. And one of the things we're going to be talking about today, we're primarily going to be looking at Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about this idea of, listen, don't disqualify yourself just because your beginnings are humble. So now, what do I mean by that? Don't disqualify yourself just because your beginnings are humble. Well, if you turn with me to Exodus 2, we're going to notice someone's beginnings, specifically Moses, and we're going to see that his beginnings were rather humble, but yet the Lord did some amazing things in his life. So we're going to begin today in Exodus chapter 2, and then we're going to be looking at, a, at several other scriptures as well, but our primary text this morning is Exodus 2, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Exodus 2. This is what it states. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this portion of Scripture, and thank you for the humble beginnings that we have the opportunity to observe Moses experiencing, and also recognizing, Lord, that you used him in great and mighty ways. And so, Lord, we pray that today, is, as our theme is humility, as we're thinking about this idea of humility or humble beginnings and kind of the starting spot where you find us and, and the starting spot where we where we ultimately begin learning the things that you want us to learn. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't resent humble beginnings, but that we would embrace the beginnings that you've given to us and that you would allow us to see that your hand is at work in our lives and we don't have to disqualify ourselves mentally or emotionally or spiritually just because we think maybe we don't have all the credentials somebody else has or something of that nature. We're just grateful, Lord, that you take people like us and you use us for your purposes 
And we're grateful for the examples that you give to us in your word of the many times that you've done this in the lives of others as well. So we commit this time to you now, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to gather together right now under the teaching of your word, looking at the things that you've done and learning about what you're doing in our lives as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So not very long ago, I was having a conversation with one of my friends, and he was lamenting certain aspects of his life story with the thought that his family background didn't really offer him a whole lot of advantage in life. And the way he said it, he said in his estimation, he didn't grow up in a place of prominence. So he thought, all right, well, that's off the table. I didn't grow up in a very prominent place. That's not an advantage to me. And then he also said he didn't come from a family that was well off financially. And so in his thinking, that was of no advantage to him. And then he treated these aspects of his personal experience as if they created some sort of an upper limit that might hinder him from doing meaningful things in his life going forward. And that was the nature of some of our conversation that day. And as we were talking about these things, and as I'm hearing him reflect on his life, his words caused me to reflect on my life as well. And it made me ask the question, if you come from humble beginnings, does that create some sort of an upper limit on how God might be able to use your life going forward? So I started reflecting on some of the things that I think this world would tell me were my disadvantages. Um, Some of you know my background. Some of you have no idea my background. So I grew up in a part of Pennsylvania, uh, the northeast portion of Pennsylvania, in, in an area in particular where poverty and drug use were far too common. Our family experienced major conflict and major disruption when I was very little, elementary school specifically. My parents did not stay together through that conflict. I moved 12 times before I graduated high school. Two of those homes should have been condemned. One of them was ultimately torn down because it was beyond repair. The most stable house I lived in growing up was a government-subsidized apartment complex. And that was the longest stretch of time that I was in one spot growing up, and it was the most stable context I lived in growing up. We didn't have much money. Our utilities were regularly shut off. I had no idea that the large blocks of cheese that we were regularly snacking on were supplied by a social assistance program that was run by the state. As soon as I finished high school, I left town and I rarely came back to visit. I was 17 years old. I only came back to visit just a few times after that. I borrowed money so I could go to college, having no idea how I was going to pay that money back and having no idea how hard it was going to be to pay that money back. Um, I worked two jobs while also paying for as much of my classes as I could while I was working those two jobs uh, to just help get through school. And then I got married literally the day after I finished my last college class. And within three and a half weeks, I was pastoring my first church, which was a church, just a small country church out in western Pennsylvania. And uh, that's kind of how my adult life started. (laughs) Now, by the grace of God, my adult life is very different from what my childhood was like. Uh, The Lord's blessed me in ways I know I don't deserve. And I'm grateful that in the midst of all of that, that one of the things that I could see that he did was he protected my mind from adopting a mindset or a belief that the disadvantages that I had experienced at a previous stage 
that those things needed to define my life going forward, because those things don't need to define your life. That sort of stuff's outside of your control, particularly during your childhood. You have no control over those things. So it certainly, in my mind, doesn't need to be something that defines my life going forward. I believe that the Lord protected my mind from adopting that kind of mindset. And in in fact, at this season of life, one of the things that he's actually been teaching me a lot about is that some of those early disadvantages were actually blessings in disguise that have served to be a great advantage to me in many ways in the years since. So I I don't even regret those things. I don't even resent those things. I'm actually grateful for the things that I learned all along the way in the process because I feel like it benefits me every day, and it certainly benefits my perspective, and, and I think in many respects has taught me to be very appreciative of a variety of things. I, I don't feel like I'm taking it for granted. And I bring up that brief synopsis of my story to just kind of ask you a little bit about your story. So do you come from humble beginnings? You know, have you mistakenly believed that those humble beginnings might actually prevent the Lord from doing something really special with your life? Is that the type of thing that you tell yourself, or do you tell yourself the opposite? Do you suppose it could be possible that the Lord gave you your humble beginnings as a gift to teach you things that you wouldn't have been able to learn any other way? And is it also possible that the Lord is using your humble circumstances or your formerly humble circumstances, whichever they may be, to prepare your heart to to understand what truly matters in this world? And I bring that up in light of what Scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 2 about Moses, because there's a variety of things that are illustrated here for us in this portion of Scripture that I think are extremely beneficial for us to kind of dial in on and to think about when we're talking about this idea of calling and why not you? Why can't the Lord use you? Of course He could use you, right? And one of the things that I think Moses' life illustrates for us is the fact that your starting point doesn't need to be impressive for you to be effective. I want to reread a few verses from Exodus 2. Let me reread the first four verses because it highlights the starting point for Moses. So even though we just read them a minute ago, I want to reread those four verses once again. It says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could, know, when she could hide him no longer... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So if you've read through the scriptures, which I know many of you have, one of the most revered men in the Bible and even culturally still to this day, one of the most revered men of all time, we could even say, is Moses. He's just, he's just a respected, revered man. His life story, we get the chance to read it in Scripture, and we see the things that the Lord did in his life. Many of us look to Moses' life. Many of us look to Moses' faith, and we're in awe of the way that the Lord used him to do some very significant things. But how much time do we spend thinking about where he started And how many things were stacked against him at a very early age? That's what Exodus 2 starts to really illustrate for us. At the time Moses was born, Scripture tells us that the people of Israel had lived within the borders of Egypt, and they were living there as slaves. And they had lived there for 430 years at that point, ever since the time of Joseph. 
But as their population grew, what ended up happening is the Pharaoh became concerned that their numbers were growing way too rapidly. And as he was watching their growth and seeing this nation expand within his borders, he thought that they might actually pose a security threat to the nation. And so he devised a very wicked and evil plan to essentially exterminate them or eliminate them as a potential threat. He ordered, first of all, that they be oppressed as slaves. So he didn't want them treated like equals. He didn't want them treated respectfully. He wanted them oppressed as slaves. And so they were forced into various forms of slave labor. And their day-to-day lives were made very, very difficult and very discouraging. And in fact, Scripture describes it as a very bitter life. So imagine if that's the word that you could use to describe your life, that your life just became so rough and so difficult. It was just a bitter life bitter life. Do any of you like sour candies or sour things? All right, some of you do. I don't understand your taste buds, all right? I really don't. Sour things, are, that's like my least favorite. Salty things, love. Sweet things, like highly. Sour things, don't like. I don't like sour fruits. I don't like sour, uh, you know, candies, anything like that. And because, um, and like, my face turns inside out when I have some of them. The other night, I, I got an iced tea, and I always ask them either for lemon or lime in my iced tea when I go out to eat. And I had squeezed it in there, and there was, like, a, a, a kind of a chunk of it right on the edge of the, the drink. And, and so I, I took my tea, and I put it up to my lips, and I got a good mouthful of that, and Andrea watched. And it was like her evening entertainment to watch my face turn inside out Friday night while we were out to eat. And I was like, yeah, I didn't uh, notice the big chunk of lime right there on the side of the tea. But to, uh, just imagine if your whole life was being described as being bitter. You know, I mean, we might like sour things. We might like, you know, uh, things that have that flavor sometimes in food. But for your whole life to be bitter, your experience to be bitter. And that's what the life of an Israelite was like. That's what the life of the Hebrew people in Egypt happened to be. He ordered, Pharaoh ordered that they be oppressed as slaves, and their life just became so bitter and so difficult and so distasteful. And then in addition to that, he also ordered that their infant sons be murdered. He said, your infant sons will be murdered. And the specific decree that he gave was that those baby boys be taken and thrown into the Nile River. Just throw them into the Nile River. That's what he ordered. Throw the baby boys into the Nile River. Now, obviously, that poses a dilemma for any God-fearing Hebrew, as you're hearing Pharaoh say something like that, you know, throw your infant boy into the Nile River. So when Moses was born, his mother looked at him and said, I can't do that to you. I can't do that. And so she tried to devise a way to hide him. And she tried to devise a way to protect him as long as she possibly could. She did this as long as she could, but by the time he was three months old, she realized that's not possible any longer. You know what I, so my wife and I were blessed with four kids. You know what I love about when a child turns three months old? That's when you get to start to see their personality, right? Have you noticed that? It's right around that three-month mark that they smile and kind of get your jokes. Now, I don't know what it says of me that my children got my jokes when they were three months old. Either they, I'm going to say that that says they were very advanced children, not that my jokes are on a three-month-year-old level, right? Or three-month-old level, right? Uh, but regardless, when a child's three months old, you start to kind of know your kid. You see what entertains them. You get to see a taste of their personality. You start to know what they're like. So imagine the pain that Moses' mother was going through when she realized this, you know, I'm, I'm sure Moses had some pipes on him, right? You know, as he's crying, probably hard to hide, 
Um, it's just impossible for her to hide this kid forever. And she's wondering, what am I going to do? She was, she was I think, feeling stuck. And I don't know what kind of punitive, punitive effects her family would have experienced if it was found that she was protecting a, uh, a three-month-old baby boy. I'm assuming it would have been severe. And so she tries to figure out what she can do. And so instead of just tossing him in the Nile, right, like the Pharaoh had said that, the, that people were supposed to do with these infant boys, she decided to do something shrewd. I like shrewd people like Moses' mother. I like what she was up to. And notice the calculating things that she does, because it's very different from how I see this portrayed sometimes in cartoons, right? Or even children's Bibles. Sometimes I see it's like Moses' mom, you know, put Moses in a basket and sent him on a water slide down the Nile, right? Now, moms, would you do that to your child? Would you just send your child on a water slide trip down the Nile? Is that what Moses' mother did? She did not do that, right? She was more calculating than that. She was very shrewd. She still loved her son. She wasn't exactly sure how best to handle this scenario, but she came up with a plan that I think is rather creative. Scripture tells us that she took a basket, and then she made the basket watertight. So that shows some care. That shows some thought. She's trying to preserve his life, not end his life. So she makes the basket watertight. And then she puts Moses in it, but notice where she places Moses. She's technically doing what the law said, but she's doing it her way because she actually wants the boy to live. She doesn't toss him in the Nile. She places him in a watertight basket, and then the Scripture tells us that she set that basket in the reeds at the bank of the water. Now, why would she set it in the reeds at the bank? Well, because the water's shallow there. And what are the reeds going to do? They're going to keep that thing from floating away. You've got something there to keep the basket in place. Now, I don't know how, like, she took her plan as far as she could take it. There are only so many things she could do. Much of this, she just had to entrust the baby to the Lord and to the Lord's care. But she, watertight basket, in the reeds, so it doesn't float away, in a very shallow part at the bank. She's trying to preserve his life, but also... I can't help but wonder if she had something else in mind, too. Because we, as human beings, are people of habit, right? I have certain habits. I, like, I, when I wake up in the morning, I go through the same routine every day, right? And when you wake up in the morning, you go through the same routine every day. When I go to bed at night, same routine every day. You know, I was joking last week that every time Andrea and I go out to eat, I pretty much get the same thing just from the menu at a different restaurant, right? We, so when I look at what happens next, I think Moses' mother was probably noticing some patterns that were maybe at play in Pharaoh's daughter's life, because it tells us that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the Nile with her servant girls, And conveniently, there's a basket with a baby waiting in that spot. Now, it doesn't directly say this, but I can't help but wonder, with all the intentionality that I'm seeing Moses' mother go through at this point, that she knows where Pharaoh's daughter typically comes down to that river to bathe. And she's probably put that basket where Pharaoh's daughter is going to notice it. And she's hoping... I think she's hoping that what happens, happens. And there's one other thing I, I want you to know. She also kind of has Moses' big sister as a guard there. She's like, hey, and it, we're told here that, that she stays at a distance where she can have eye contact, and she looks and, and, she, and she wants to see what's going to happen to the boy. 
And then it's also kind of cool how <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby, and, and her heart is moved, and she's like, oh, this is one of those Hebrew babies. And then Moses' big sister is like, hey, um, you want me to get you someone that can nurse that child for you? I know somebody. Like, I have some connections locally here in the community. It's like, Mom, get over here, right? And then what ends up happening? Moses' mother gets paid to raise her own son for a little bit, you know? It's like, isn't that so cool? I look at that. If I, you know, in heaven when we get to meet Moses' mother, everybody needs to give her a collective high five because that is a very shrewd series of events, and that is someone showing some genuine motherly care. So every time I see, you know, a child's program that shows Moses just, wee, you know, going down the Nile like his mother did that, I'm like, no mom would do that, right? That is not what the Bible actually says. And when you look at the details of Moses' life, as this now plays out, and his life plays out in different, in thirds, right? You've got the first 40 years where he's growing up, and then the next 40 years where he's kind of wandering, and then 40 years where the Lord uses him. And by the way, the real highlight of Moses' life doesn't really get underway until he's 80 years old. So I don't care how old anyone in this room happens to be, or anyone watching the live stream, or anyone that, that accesses this once it's recorded. Moses was 80 when things really started to ramp up for him. I'm just throwing that out there so that that excuse can get taken off the table. Don't use the age one. Don't say it's somebody else's job just because you're older than other people. That's not really something that lines up with the example we see in Moses' life. But when you look at the details of his life, you can see the hand of God upon him the entire time. See that the entire time, right? And his life, when you look at his life, his life presents a series of low moments and then a series of high moments. But it was clear that the Lord was lifting him up. It was also clear that the Lord was putting him right where he needed to be in order to do what he was called to do. And so again, when I look at Moses' life, I'm also reminded that your starting point does not need to be impressive for you to be effective. So you might be born among slaves who are forced to give you up. You might be floating in a little basket on the edge of the Nile unable to do anything for yourself other than cry. That's the only thing Moses was able to do, basically. Scripture tells us there he was crying, right? But if God has a plan for your life, which, by the way, he most certainly does, he can orchestrate the most unlikely of circumstances to work in your favor and cause you to be raised up. You don't have to raise yourself up. He can cause you to be raised up. He can rescue your seemingly hopeless life and place you in a spot where you can impact the lives of many, many people for their good and for His glory. And I love that when I look at Moses' life, because that's exactly what you see the Lord doing. Now, I want to point out something else. And there's another example that comes from Moses' life, and it's just a brief verse I want to share that highlights this. But in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us something about Moses' character and his walk with God. And it illustrates to us that a humble life is a useful tool in the Lord's hands. But the way it says this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, Moses was a very humble man. And then it makes this statement. It says, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. And you're wondering, did he wear that as like a badge? Did he have like a sash that he wore? Most humble, right? I guess that wouldn't work, would it? But the scripture tells us he was, the, he was a very humble man. A very humble man. Now, humility is a word that I think we're familiar with. That's a word that we tend to use. But I've noticed that many people tend to define that word quite incorrectly in their mind. 
Most often when I hear that word used, people seem to think that it means to think poorly of yourself or to somehow be down on yourself. So is that what you think humility means? Like, does humility, to think, does it, humility mean to think poorly of yourself or to beat yourself up or to be down on yourself? Is that humility? I think many people think that's what humility is, but that's not how the Bible illustrates humility to us. Biblical humility looks quite different. Biblical humility involves understanding who you are in relation to a holy God. God is perfect. We are not. God is all-knowing. We are not. God is creative, and we're creative on a lesser scale because we're created in His image. God is powerful, and we have access to the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a power that's much greater than our own natural power. But that's the essence of biblical humility. It's not thinking poorly of yourself. It's the idea of seeing yourself in light of who God is, realizing who God is and who He made you to be. And so we understand who we are in light of that truth. I love what C.S. Lewis once said about humility. I'll share two things he said related to pride and humility. Related to humility, he once said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that a great statement? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I like that statement. He also said something about pride, kind of going along with his thoughts on humility. But he said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Isn't that a cool statement? So if you're proud, if you're always looking, on, if you're looking down on people and things, you're going to end up missing who God is and who you are in light of who God is. So he's saying the proud man, always looking down, and then he ends up missing what's right there, right? You know the name George Washington Carver? You know what everyone gives him credit for? Everyone gives him credit for inventing peanut butter. Now, he did not invent peanut butter. I'm ha- I, sorry to break the news. I wish he did, because I'd love to give him credit for that, because that's my favorite peanut product of all time, right? Um, but he was a scientist. He developed hundreds of useful ways to use the peanut, and uh, in, in ways that people wouldn't have even thought of, right? And he developed all sorts of things. And he said this. This is, this is a very interesting statement that George Washington Carver once said. He said, when I was young... I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. And then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. (laughs) When I read that, I thought that was funny. And he said, Andy told me. That was his follow-up to that. He's like, Andy told me. God revealed things to me about how the peanut could be used And here we are, a culture that that makes great use of it. But here's the thing. A humble life is very useful in God's hands. Humble life is very useful in God's hands, very useful tool. And I think that becomes pretty clear when you observe the life of Moses, when you can see the things that the Lord was doing in Moses' life. I also think it's fascinating to consider that Scripture tells us that during the course of his life, there was no one on the face of the earth who was more humble than Moses. Now, think about that in light of how we just defined humility. Humility is seeing yourself in light of who God is. Well, I suspect that after interacting with God as directly and as frequently as Moses did throughout the course of his adult life, 
I would imagine that that would certainly help somebody develop an attitude of humility, where he started to see God and who he is and his perfect holiness. And Moses started to see himself in light of who God is. But he was also very confident in how the Lord could use him, and he watched the Lord use his life in very miraculous ways. But Moses was placed in a position where the Lord was able to steer his humble heart. And as he grew in his knowledge of the Lord, his heart developed humility, and the Lord steered his humble heart in very fascinating ways. And so let's just ask ourselves, are our hearts open to being steered by the Lord? Because a humble life is a very useful tool in the Lord's hands. So are we needlessly berating ourselves, and are we perpetually putting ourselves down, or have we developed a mature understanding of who we are in light of who He is? I think that's what we see Moses ultimately doing as his faith continued to grow, but I also believe that that's something that the Lord wants you and me to do as well. There's something else Scripture illustrates for us related to humility that I think is very powerful. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. And when the Lord fosters humility in your life and in my life, what He ends up doing is He helps us to identify and then meet the needs of other people because we stop being so focused on ourselves and we start to see the needs that are right in front of us. And when you look at Philippians chapter 2, it illustrates that through the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2, starting with verse 3, it says this. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So it's saying, think this way, because Jesus thinks this way. Recently, I was uh, chatting with a friend of mine about what Christmas was like at his house when he was growing up. And he was telling me that when he was a child, his mother, he, so he, it's just him and one brother, so it was two boys, and he told me that his mother would lavish more gifts upon him and his brother than they knew what to do with. And he said he always looked forward to it. He thought it was great, although as he got older, he started to realize this is a lot of stuff. Like, this is a lot of stuff. And, you know, as you get older, you start to analyze a little bit more about people's motivations and some of the things that, that kind of influence the behavior that they, they demonstrate. And he realized that some of this was coming from the spot that his mother had grown up with very little. In fact, she, she grew up with essentially nothing. And so it brought her great joy to be lavish in the blessings that she bestowed upon her sons because her sons were growing up in a context that was slightly better than what she had grown up in. And so she was trying to give them all the things that she felt she lacked when she was their age. And so she would pile it on and pile it on. And really, you know, it, it, he said when, it, when he looked at her life, he realized that she spent the majority of her adult life looking after the needs of her sons, thinking about her sons, caring about her sons more so than she cared about herself. And this came at even, even great personal cost to herself, but this was her expression of love. This is how she was demonstrating love toward them. And I think it's interesting that because when we develop a mindset of biblical humility, what we end up doing is we start to, to identify and we start to meet the needs of others. The needs of other people start to catch our attention. Even if the process of doing so is costly and painful, there's still this part of our heart that is touched to meet the needs 
of others. And again, there's no greater example of that than the sacrificial service that we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And even though Jesus is one with the Father, Scripture tells us that He did not selfishly hold on to His divine rights, and He did not selfishly hold on to His divine privileges, but rather He submitted Himself to the will of the Father, and then He demonstrated perfect humility, and then He placed our needs above His own comforts when He came to this earth to secure our salvation. That's what He did for you, and that's what He did for me. Humility helps you identify and meet the needs of others. We see no greater example of that than what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I also think it's interesting to observe the life of Christ when he came to this earth, because when he was born on this earth, he didn't come to this earth and, and, and have the privilege of being born in a castle, right? He, he didn't select to be born in a castle. He was essentially born in a barn with two humble parents who were not highly esteemed by this world. And Scripture illustrates for us very specifically that, in fact, they were very poor. And after his birth, the first visitors that came to see him were whom? The shepherds. And if you know anything about the way shepherds were thought of in the culture at the time, that was thought of as, as a somewhat demeaning job. It was a dirty job. It was a difficult job. And some people would treat the shepherds with a certain amount of disdain. But it was the shepherds that the angels announced the birth of Christ to. And it was the shepherds, these simple shepherds who were humble enough to actually listen to what the angels said. And then they went and saw Jesus just as they were told that they would see him. So they were humble enough to listen to the announced birth of Jesus, this announcement that the angels gave. And they went and visited him in humble circumstances, born to humble people, visited by humble people. It's just an example of humility surrounding the birth of Christ over and over and over again. And when I look at that, I think to myself, all right, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created and sustains the universe and who upholds all creation by His powerful Word, if He's willing to exhibit humility to serve us, and if He's willing to exhibit humility to meet our needs, what kind of mindset should we be developing as the Holy Spirit transforms the way that we think and the way that we live in the midst of this world? Our mindset, like it tells us in Philippians 2 verse 5, our mindset should be exactly the same as the mindset of Christ, where we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. So let me say this in our, our final moments as we finish up this morning. Jesus said something very specific about humility that I want to read to us in just a moment. But one of the things that he wanted us to understand about humility is this, that in the Lord's system, it's the humble that will be exalted. It's the humble that will be lifted up. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in the world's system, the humble are pitied, right? But in the Lord's system, the humble are lifted up. And Jesus made it clear that the humble will be exalted while the proud will eventually be humbled. So it's backward, right? It's backward from what this world teaches, but Jesus tells us this is what reality actually is. The humble will be exalted, but the proud will eventually be humbled. So let me say this as we finish up. And again, we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks talking about calling and, and some of the things that go into that. So if you're interested in pursuing the dreams or the desires or the calling specifically that God has placed on your life, 
Don't disqualify yourself from those possibilities just because you may come from humble circumstances. I think when you look at what Scripture teaches us, it teaches us that that is irrelevant in some respects, or it's useful. And from what I see in God's Word, He has a great habit of taking people with very humble beginnings and then doing things with their lives that are far beyond anything they would have ever expected or imagined. And if he's willing to do this for others, and if this is the demonstration he's given to us in Scripture, and if this is also the demonstration he's given to us in the experience where he took on flesh and dwelt among us, I don't think that this is the type of thing that you and I should look at and say, just because I come from humble circumstances, I'm useless. In fact, what I see illustrated in the Word of God is that might make you particularly useful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at the things that we just looked at together from it. And Lord, we know that it's very easy for us to demean ourselves. It's very easy for us to look down on ourselves and to to think poorly of ourselves. And, And sometimes we do that to a level that it's just ridiculous. And so, Lord, we repent of that before you, and we pray that we would remember what your word actually teaches and not confuse it with worldly metrics, because this world tells us that we have to come from every sort of advantage, and that we, that we have to, even as parents, provide every sort of advantage for our children to be used by you. But Lord, when we look at what your word tells us, it's, that's not the case. Your word tells us that, that you take people that, that exhibit humility, and you steer their lives in really valuable and very interesting directions, and that you do amazing things through those whose hearts are yielded over to you, through those who, who develop the mind of your Son, Jesus Christ, who looks to the needs of others. And Lord, we know that, that sometimes when we're given every advantage in this world, sometimes all that does is it just goes to our head, and sometimes we think, that we could trust those advantages more so than we can trust you, Lord. Sometimes I, I look at, at child celebrities and some of the people that, that really from an early age have the world handed to them, and it just seems like the second chapter of their life is always so tragic or, or, or usually very tragic unless there's some sort of intervention along the way to help prevent that from taking place. But it's almost like we as human beings don't know what to do with worldly advantages when they come our way. Sometimes we end up idolizing them. Sometimes we end up worshiping the blessings instead of worshiping the one who blesses. And so, Lord, again, we're just grateful for the seasons of our life where you teach us that that learning biblical humility, where we begin to see ourselves in light of who you are, that that has great value. And we're just so thankful, Lord, for, again, the fact that you were willing to demonstrate that through your son, Jesus Christ, as he walked among us. So, Lord, we're grateful for for your calling on our life. We pray that we would listen to you as you seek to steer and direct us, and we pray that we would put you first, that you would transform our thinking, and that we would walk through our lives in the midst of this world as ambassadors of yours who seek to honor you and seek to glorify your name. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one other announcement, and I hope I debated whether I was going to do this, and I was persuaded by our midweek Bible study group to share this with you. It's kind of a big deal in my life, but I'm only, gonna, I'm only planning to say something about it one time, so here's it, all right? So my son asked me before, he's like, Dad, what do you have up there on the stage? I saw something on the stool, so I told him.
So many of you know that over the past group of years, um, I just I take a lot of joy in writing. I love to write books. I've written a, a bunch at this point. And, and those books have been books that I've had the opportunity to basically self-publish or use Amazon system to publish. Lots of opportunities. If you feel like the Lord's placed upon you a calling to be an author, lots of good opportunities to do that. I would encourage you to pursue that because you don't know what's going to come from it. And at the end of 2019, the largest publishing company in the United States Penguin Random House approached me and offered me a book contract to write my next book. And so since the end of 2019, I've been working on something that comes out on Tuesday. So, and the, the interesting thing about this is you'll be able to find this pretty much everywhere. So if you go into Barnes & Noble, it'll be there. If you go into Target, it'll be there. At least it's on their website. Uh, if you go to Walmart, it might be there as well. If you go into Hobby Lobby, I think it might be there. And uh, it's a book called Dwell on These Things. And it's basically a 31-day challenge to start talking to yourself the way God talks to you. It's based on the concept that we're given in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where it tells us to dwell on things above. So this comes out on Tuesday, and, um, and I, I'd ask that you pray about something in regard to it. I wrote this, obviously, to encourage Christians and to help us in our walk with the Lord, but I've also realized that this can be a great tool that the Lord can use to help people who don't know Him. In fact, one of my friends who, who admitted to me, he said, I'm very confused ab- about faith, but he said to me, he said, I, he had an advanced copy of this, and he said, I read it cover to cover, and he said, it's causing me to question some things and really wrestle with things. We had a few good conversations this week. I was really edified in his feedback, and so his challenge to me was, he said, don't just think about it as a book for already established Christians. This actually might be something that helps people develop an understanding of actually what it means to genuinely follow Jesus. So I'd ask you if you would pray that the Lord would use this book in that capacity, because its distribution, at least while it's new, is going to be pretty notable. One other thing, I want to read to you something that I put in here, because it's to you. So I'm just going to read it to you. So at the back here, uh, there's a section where I had the opportunity to acknowledge a few things. And I acknowledge my relationship with the Lord and my family and uh, just people in my life that have been a blessing to me. But I want to read to you what I mentioned about our church, because it's here in the book. And I said this, I'm grateful for our church family at Core Creek Community Church. It's a privilege to worship and serve Jesus together with them also deeply appreciative of the many ways that they have encouraged me as their pastor, while also finding thoughtful ways to be a blessing to my wife and children. And that has meant so much to me, and is the type of thing that, you know, I I have some pastoral friends that have the desire to do different things, but they serve in contexts that constantly discourage them. And sometimes I feel a little guilty about it, but I, I have the privilege to serve in a context that encourages me. And uh, I just want to thank you for that, because it, it's motivating, and it's, it's very helpful. So if this is helpful to you, it'll be floating around. They also did one other thing. This kind of blew my mind. They said, we're going to make a gift set of cards where we take snippets from the book and make them reminders that people can look at this and just kind of flip through it. And so I don't know where you'll find these, maybe in the same stores that the book's at. I have no idea. This is new for me. Um, but again, if, you're, if you could pray, I'll put these in the back if anyone wants to take a sneak peek at them. But if you would pray that the Lord would use this in some way, it's one of the most unique opportunities he's ever entrusted to me. I want to make sure I'm a good steward of it, and um, I would genuinely and sincerely appreciate 
your prayers if you would offer them for uh, the open door for ministry that the Lord's giving me through this publishing opportunity.